1: nameless or friendless or if in life you owed a welfare debt to society then you should pay that debt on the dissection table when you died.
2: That was Elizabeth T. Hurran talking about the Victorian trade in cadavers.
3: If you don't know history you have a really skewed sense of the present. You think everything that happens is new and exciting and different and it's not the case at all. Everything has been done before, has been thought before. We're mostly recycling old ideas.
2: And that was Robert Greene, explaining how history can guide us today. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. And we also now have a Kindle Fire edition as well, which you can get hold of on the Kindle newsstand. There are more details of all of this, and great subscription offers, on our website, historyextra.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, at historyextra, or on Facebook, forward slash historyextra. The 19th century trade in dead bodies for medical research was a shadowy one, but nonetheless one that was very much present in Victorian England, with some 125,000 bodies traded by English medical schools between 1832 and 1930. The magazine section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Elizabeth T. Huron, author of a new book on the subject, to find out more about the Victorian market for corpses and its impact on modern medicine.
0: From your research, have you found any evidence of a trade in dead bodies prior to the Victorian
1: period? Well, the simple answer is that the medical profession has always needed, in history, dead bodies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Because it's much better to practice on the dead than it is on the living, obviously. So... um, Yes, there's lots of evidence that there has always been a body trade. I mean, we know, for example, from the time of Leonardo da Vinci, that he was given exclusive access to bodies, as was Vesalius, the great anatomist of the early modern period. Um, In Britain, um, there were various ways in which anatomists acquired bodies, um, usually by royal charter, so that um, from the time of the um, barber surgeon's company, when it was uh, reconfigured by Henry VIII, in the 16th century, they were entitled to so many bodies per year within um, the city of London. So um, there's always been a trade in dead bodies. Um, By the 18th century, the most common way, however, to um, acquire bodies was from the gallows. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I'm working on actually at the moment in a big project um, funded by the Wellcome Trust. And we're looking at uh, the power of the criminal corpse on the gallows and then the power of it for medicine. And the the very complex things that it actually symbolized um, so that um, there was always a scramble to get those bodies. And the reality is there were not enough people committing murder in the 18th century to satisfy the needs of medicine. So what anatomists tended to do is they tended to pay uh, resurrectionists or their more common name, sackmen, and these were people who would dig up dead bodies from graveyards and then sell them at the back of private anatomy schools in the 18th century uh, for profit. And it was actually that problem, uh, it being very illegal, and more importantly, the fact that rich and middle-class bodies were being dug up, mm-hmm. that actually led to the Anatomy Act being passed. Why would their body such a commodity in the 19th century, though? Well, what happens in the 19th century is that medicine, with uh, the enlightenment, the rise of rationality and science, medicine wants to become a profession. And as soon as it sets out to do that, then it's going to have a number of new regulations. So that um, with the Medical Act in 1858, it becomes a legal requirement for every medical student to train for two years in human anatomy at a designated medical school. And they have to undertake the dissection of two whole corpses. And that must be signed off properly. Otherwise, they don't qualify medicine. And more importantly, they can't register with the General Medical Council and become a qualified doctor. So as the number of uh, people training in medicine increases and it's going to increase sixfold fold um, across the 19th century then you can imagine that the number of bodies that you actually need people to practice on then goes up and that's what creates such a uh, uh, public pressure for this body trade.
0: And so if you were a medical student where
1: and how could you obtain a dead body? Well there are a number of ways that you did it. Um, usually you would wait at the back door of a medical school in the early morning light and there would be a body dealer who would be returning from um, the streets around the medical school, wherever that was located and you would be um, uh, waiting to pay your fee Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and to get your body or indeed your body part because quite often the bodies were uh, broken up for sale because it's actually more profitable to do that and they would be waiting then to um, as it were receive the cadaver and they would take it immediately then into the dissection room and we have to remember that in the very early victorian period we're in a uh, an era when preservation techniques are rather crude we don't have refrigeration we have chemical preservation Mm -hmm. so the faster that you can get to the body because it's obviously decaying um, the better the anatomy Uh, lesson that you will experience so you would um, be waiting to get it off the body dealer pay your money and work on the body over the next typically 72 hours Um, after that um, it's actually quite difficult to work on it because it's decaying too much And where do these bodies come from? Well, they come from a wide variety of places, obviously in the very poorest districts. If we take, for example, the East End of London um, or an area around the Holborn area of London, which is called Little Ireland or indeed up towards Hatton Garden City, which is where the Italian community lived, what you find is that in the poorer areas or areas of very high ethnicity or migrant communities, these are the places where people can't afford to bury their dead because it's quite expensive to. And so um, they sell the body and the anatomists, when they're finished with it, will then bury it uh, on behalf of the family. Typically, you will also um, get a body at the back of a workhouse infirmary. Mm-hmm. And indeed, um, as the 19th century progresses, you can also buy one uh, from an asylum. So, it's, it tends to be um, the di- what we would think of today as sort of people who are down and out, people who are nameless, people who are friendless, are typically people who have no money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they are the most vulnerable to the body trade. And they always have been, and indeed, they they remain so today. I think that's something we tend to forget. Yeah, I mean...
0: So it sounds like being a body dealer was actually quite a lucrative job. Um, How much could they expect to receive for a body?
1: Well, it really depended on the type of body that was for sale so if it was a um, an elderly body it's quite difficult to study the human anatomy in an elderly body because obviously you have the degenerative changes of old age for example if you want to study muscles well the older you are it tends to be that the thinner those muscles um the same with your organs so for example the lungs in an elderly person would not look like the the lungs in a young person Mm -hmm. because obviously there's pollution levels um as you age so you would pay about a week's wage for um an elderly person, about a month's wage for a middle-aged person. Um, If the person was pregnant and female, Mm -hmm. then you could pay for up to a year's wage. They are the most valuable commodity of all, because anatomists want to study uh, miscarriages, stillbirths, and um, and indeed the creation of life, which has always fascinated uh, medical science over time. So... um, A typical case that I studied was that of a prostitute in Holborn. Um, She got pregnant by a CAD and she found out that he was actually engaged to someone else. Mm -hmm. Out of despair, she tried to um, have an abortion. It didn't work. She then swallowed a, a vial of oxalic acid. And when that didn't then bring on the abortion, she um, decided to take it all and committed suicide. At the time, she was four months pregnant. Well, she would be a very valuable commodity Mm -hmm. um, because she's young. She was 24. She was a servant. um, And she has no family because she's come to London um, a long way from home. And so she's exactly the sort of person that would have been, if you like, the highest commodity value.
0: I mean... It's quite a a dark
1: trade um Mm. was it known about in wider society and was it accepted um it was known about um the anatomy act of 1832 was the piece of legislation that permitted this and it basically said that if you were poor nameless or friendless or if in life you owed a welfare debt to society then you should pay that debt on the dissection table when you died And this was a a quite widely known act and much resented, particularly, as you can imagine, in poorer communities. Nonetheless... Um, the Anatomy Act also protected anatomists from public view so that the trade was actually going on, but relatively little was known about its mechanics or indeed its profits. So, I always think of it as a hidden history, a secret of history, and one that we've tended not to want to know about. It's a very uncomfortable history, actually, um, because on the one hand, Um, you know we want to be the beneficiaries of medical science and we all do but on the other hand it's quite uncomfortable to think how we got there yeah so it's a sort of a double-sided coin really
0: and how did the law deal with them, um, these body dealers? Were there, I mean, you mentioned in the feature that some people actually came up for prosecution.
1: Mm. Mm. Well, they did. I mean, the, the, the most pro- one of the most prominent cases, which I mentioned in the feature, is that of Albert Feist. And uh, he was a master of a workhouse in Newington, uh, south of the... Uh, of the River Thames in London. And he was assisted by uh, an undertaker called Mr. Hogg, the undertaker. And what tended to happen um, everywhere is is typical of what happens in their particular case. They were fined out. There were a number of scandals that came to light. They had been taking bodies into um, a dead house at the back of the workhouse. And they'd been telling people they'd been burying their loved ones, but they weren't actually. They were um, sending the youngest bodies to Guy's Hospital and selling them for anatomy, and swapping uh, younger bodies for older bodies, and then burying older bodies uh, in coffins and staging essentially false funerals. And eventually, they're doing it on such a scale that it comes to light, and they're prosecuted at the Old Bailey. When they get to the Old Bailey, um, there's a lot of um, public outrage, obviously, um, about the evidence, but... Um, the anatomy inspectorate uh, who policed the Anatomy Act were very concerned about the levels of publicity and what it would mean for the whole trade. So they gave Mr. Hogg, the undertaker, immunity from prosecution in order to give evidence. Feist then is found um, guilty, and indeed the evidence is overwhelming that he was guilty, but he gets off on appeal which is very interesting because it really wasn't in the anatomy inspectorate's interests for him to be um, to go to jail because the problem then is is that this is actually going on everywhere, so that's not something that they actually want <laughs> to be publicised. So he finds himself on the one hand very guilty, but on the other hand he's got so much on the anatomy act and uh, the anatomy inspectorate that it was in everybody's interest to, as it were, quell the case. Um, and there were a number of these scandals that came to light, um, but in general, the body dealers were protected.
0: And even after the the Anatomy Act, so the, the Act allowed people to, to to dissect the bodies. You know,
1: were there things that weren't allowed under the Act? Well, um, in theory, in theory, there were a number of things that weren't allowed on t- under the Act. So, for example, you were supposed to wait six weeks to make sure that the person you were dissecting. Um, wasn't nameless and friendless and that they may have had a family that could collect them for burial Um, and in reality um, you probably had six hours (laughs) to get the body so that was the first problem the second issue was that under the act you were supposed, as a poor person, you were supposed to be able to um, object in writing or indeed in person, because this is an oral culture amongst the poor, to the act. But of course, the act was never actually shown to anyone, and that was never actually explained to the poor in detail for obvious reasons, because it would prevent um, the sales. Then the third thing was that anatomy schools themselves were built in such a way that you couldn't actually see into them, because they were aware of the fact that what they were doing was so taboo and offended people's sensibilities. <laughs> Uh, that they tended to have a 12-foot wall around them and they only had skylights. Um, so, you couldn't actually see in. So, you had, in reality, no idea what actually went in on inside, if mm-hmm. you like. Now, this tended to increase the fear of what went on um, um, and, and at the same time, gave the anatomist privacy, if you like, um, to do the medical research that they um, wished to do. So over time there tended to be a distancing between those in the poorer communities and the anatomists which only then served to be like almost like a bad self-validating prophecy you know we mustn't tell the poor what's going on we must hide more therefore the poor get more fearful therefore you hide even more what you're doing Mm -hmm. so it's um it becomes a kind of a circular sort of argument and the way we did that in britain is very different from the way that they do it in european countries where they were much more open about it
0: okay um And you mentioned earlier um, that the bodies decayed quite quickly. Mm. Um, How were they transported and preserved for examination? Right, well, there were
1: two ways that they did it. Um, If it was in the provinces, the bodies were transported by railway. Mm -hmm. Um, The growth of the Victorian railway system meant that they could put each body in what they called a double deal box. So this was a, a... a box that was lined with two types of wood essentially there was an inner wood which was usually um, oak because it doesn't leak so much um, and then an outer um, box which would be from cheap pine wood mm-hmm. and these would be put in this double deal box and they would be put in the cargo section of carriages usually attached to fast trains um, which would be leaving Um, you know, up and down the country. So, for example, from Manchester to Cambridge, there was a fast train that went through Leeds twice a week and connected up to Hull. And Hull is a a city with very high um, mortality rates. And Hull sold an awful lot of its dead from Hull Workhouse to Cambridge Anatomy School, for example. And they were transported up and down the railway. Um, And obviously, um, you just think it's cargo. You wouldn't you know, realise what was actually being transported. And it was usually done at night. So an undertaker then would um, go to Cambridge Railway Station and the body would be um, uh, put in a carriage and would be taken at night to the anatomy school. So that's how it worked in the provinces. In London, um, it tended to be body dealers and there was a network of them across the capital and one of the things I've been doing is actually tracing some of these body dealers and what they would do is if we take St Bartholomew's Hospital in London which is um, one of the biggest medical schools and they would employ body dealers and they looked like they were collecting soiled laundry each night so they would turn up at the back of the uh, hospital at uh, the Henry VIII gate and there would be a series of Um, wicker baskets on wheels Mm -hmm. and they were filled with laundry, what, what looked like soiled laundry and in reality those are the wicker baskets for the body dealers and they would then take those wicker baskets and they would walk them through the streets either down into the east end of London or typically down into the Holborn area, into Little Ireland in particular and they would go up and down the streets where there's the highest mortality and they would make a deal on the street they would then pick up the body and put it into the wicker basket and they would then cover the, so- the laundry on top of it and their last port of call would be to collect the clean laundry uh, at the end of the night and then wheel it back up to the hospital in the morning so it just looks like it's a very heavy delivery of mm-hmm. clean laundry essentially but of course underneath it are the bodies.
0: How do we know so much about the trade? What sources have you found in your research?
1: Well, I've been doing, as you can imagine, an awful lot of record linkage work Mm. um, uh, to do this. In some areas, um, the dissection registers survive, and that's really helpful if they do, but quite often they do not. So what I was able to do was to trace the burial records of each... dissection school and to use those to then um, join them up as it were to records from infirmaries and workhouses and coroner's reports um, and city police reports or anything and railway records as you can imagine. Mm. Um, so that what then emerges is that if you trace someone's life from death back into life, you can then find the people who got lost essentially in this history. Um, and it's also the best way to do it really because a lot of people simply disappear. And if you're a good family historian, for example, and you're trying to find a relative and you know they were in the workhouse and they died and you can't find them anywhere, well it's likely that they were transported on the railway to a medical school Mm -hmm. and then the medical school would have buried them on site so they would have buried them for example in Cambridge or in Oxford or Manchester in the burial ground that was set aside Mm -hmm. there so you might be trying to trace the relative from as I said Hull or Doncaster somewhere like that but in fact the relative is buried in Cambridge.
0: All right okay And, and what do you think the trade in dead bodies during the 19th century has done for
1: medicine today? Oh, it's done a huge amount. I mean, we are so much the beneficiaries of this trade. And in some ways, I always say, you know, when <laughs> when biomedicine is at its most successful, it is literally as easy as breathing. Mm. And we don't have to think about it because of what it's done for us. But I mean, if we take some very sort of basic examples of some of the technologies that were developed. Um, so when they were doing, for example, um, early x-rays, which at the time were called skyographs in the 1890s, they find that it was much easier to photograph um, a dead body than it was to try to photograph, um, well, they tried using cats. And if anybody's got a pet, they'll know how (laughs) difficult it is to photograph a cat, let alone hold it still. Um, So... um, And then they realised that because the technology is so uncertain, so even today, if you go for an x-ray, they'll say, don't move your hand or don't move your arm. Um, They realised that if they photographed a smaller body, then that would actually be better as well, Mm -hmm. easier to photograph. So um, at Cambridge, for example they skyographed um, some poor children that had died. And before they dissected them, they would actually skyograph them. And, and this helped them to develop that technology. When you think about the millions and millions of people around the world who've benefited from that, mm. um, you know, that simple um, scientific step, if you like. I mean, it is pretty extraordinary, actually. But we never make the link to the poor no, because that's the bit we don't see. so when you see an image of an x-ray you, you know you, you just accept it as what it is but you don't know that it's actually layered with this um, sort of history And to add to that I mean if we go forward to you know the 1950s, um, Crick and Watson when they were developing DNA it was actually x-ray technology, um, the skyographs that developed into the x-rays that first allowed them to actually recognize the shape of the double helix so and that's our frontier of medicine today so that step was has had enormous um implications for us um you know for every every person in the world and goodness knows what we'll be able to do with that dna in the future um, and you know it's a very exciting time for us in uh, in medicine but it wouldn't be so if it hadn't been for all of these people who'd been traded
4: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra.
2: That was Elizabeth T. Harren on the 19th century trade in dead bodies. Her book, Dying for Victorian Medicine, is published by Palgrave. And you can read an article by Elizabeth in our Christmas issue, which is out now. Also in the magazine, you'll find articles on the dark side of the Anglo-Saxons, Napoleon's spin doctors, dangerous Tudor toys, and the mire in the apocalypse. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents as well as digitally. Our second guest this week is the American writer Robert Greene. Robert is the author of several best-selling books, including The 48 Laws of Power and The 50th Law, which was co-written with the rapper 50 Cent. In much of his work, Robert uses examples from history to provide strategies for modern life. And in his latest book, Mastery, Robert offers lessons from great artists, musicians, scientists, and others to enable us to reach the pinnacles of our professions today. He paid a visit to London recently, and I headed to the Big Smoke to meet him. How helpful do you feel that the
3: past can be as a guide to improving your life? Well, history can be extremely helpful. Um, You know, it's, it's the... The negative experience, mostly the well, the negative and the positive experiences of people who've come before us. um, There's just incredible lessons to be learned. Um, It sort of depends on the approach that that people have. I I use history um, as kind of a a ground for all kinds of, of examples and stories that I think we can learn from and benefit from. And I have pro my approach is uh, let's say I'm studying someone like Napoleon. I want to read um, as many different biographies as possible and get a feel for how his mind worked um, and what made him such a superior general field general than any other person in history and in doing that i I go, you know, I feel like I go pretty deep inside, and I figure out that Napoleon had an incredibly um, organized mind. He could, he could um, absorb huge amounts of information and organized, and he also took notes and used note cards and and he was very disciplined and organized, but going so deep into it and figuring out that that was really the source, one of the main sources of his genius, was how how much information he knew more than any other general and how organized it was. Now that you know that, it really, um, there's an incredible lesson to be learned there, that what made someone superior in that particular endeavor was the depth of their knowledge. Um, and how he had that at his fingertips continually in the war room when he's planning and on the field. And so, um, you know, if you just buy the myth of Napoleon as this romantic great general or this devil or whatever, there's nothing you can really learn from him. And so a lot of these historical figures are sort of shrouded in myth and misconceptions. Um, and then once you sort of understand them and, and, and go into what really is the source of their genius, it's incredibly illuminating. And then I love the lessons of people's mistakes, um, the tragic element in history, the incompetence, the, the stupid wars. The, uh, you know, in this book I have the story of Dr. Isaac Semmelweis, who's a genius, but he's so bad at dealing with people. And so horrible in politics that he keeps getting fired and has to move on to this job and the other job. And he ends up kind of insane and homeless in his 40s and he dies. And he could have been the pastor of his age, but he he had no what I call social intelligence. So I love those negative stories uh, and also the concept people now, if you don't know history you have a really skewed sense of the present. You think everything that happens is new and exciting and different, and wow, no one's ever done this before, and it's not the case at all. Everything has been done before, has been thought before. We're mostly recycling old ideas. So knowing history very deeply gives you a sense of perspective and a little bit of humility, I think.
2: And um, there's obviously so many interesting characters through history. How do you go around narrowing down the people you want to include in a book like this?
3: Well, um, I'm saying that these are masters, so these are the, the highest level you can attain in your field, and the only way to judge it is by their achievements. So I don't want to get into if there's some sort of controversy or it's sort of some people are arguing whether this was the best general or the best musician. But I think pretty clearly with a Da Vinci or a Mozart or a Darwin or an Einstein or uh, Glenn Gould, there's no many argument left. These are clearly geniuses because their work is so incredibly superior or their discoveries are so superior. So I pretty much uh, could, you know, pick-and-choose people whose achievements I felt were, were far and away above anybody else,
2: you know. And, did, and these people come from very different cultures, but did yes. you find certain common traits that they all shared, these masters?
3: Yes, I mean, that's sort of the, the, the gist of the book, um, was having researched so deeply. Um, I think, I don't know, I didn't count how many figures I researched, let's say close to 100 Um, They did. They all shared these common traits. Um, It didn't matter what period in time they were or what culture it could be. For instance, I have two, I think, of the greatest music geniuses of all time. There's Mozart and there's John Coltrane. One's Viennese, the other's African-American, two different time periods. Um, Who could be more different? Obviously, their music is very different. And when you go deeply into their stories, it's, it's really this exact same story, um, just in a different genre, j- jazz as opposed to classical music. Uh, the story of people who learn so many different types of music, so many, their vocabulary is so large that they're able to now combine these different styles of music into some new hybrid that no one's ever created before, which is what Mozart did, which is what Coltrane did, and it's a function of intense discipline and years of practice. And so, essentially what I'm saying is the human brain evolved over the course of millions of years in a particular way. Um, And we as civilized humans, it's only six, seven thousand, eight thousand years of history, We are all products of those millions of years of history. It doesn't matter whether we're from Africa or Los Angeles or England and what period it is. The brain functions a certain way. And the brain requires, the the, the longer you study something, the deeper you go into it. Certain levels of reality are uncovered as you go further and further and further. And it's a process that transcends your culture or your ethnicity or anything.
2: And something I found interesting from from what I've read of the book so far is that we always think of geniuses as people have this spark of genius that that elevated them above other people. But what seems to me to be the common trend is a combination of passion and hard work more than anything that got these people where they were, not just this spark of genius that they had.
3: Well, I don't believe in the spark of genius theory. I pretty much want to rant against it and and debunk it um, because... I mean, certainly at a certain level of genius where you've been studying something for so many years, ideas come to you out of nowhere. When Einstein discovered the first theory of special relativity, he was talking to a friend and suddenly an image popped into his mind a new thought experiment that essentially said to him time is relative and then everything unraveled from that you could call that a spark in that moment but what laid the groundwork for that spark was ten years of the most intense study and absorption in one single problem for so many hours that that's where if you didn't have that there would be no spark so I want to debunk the myth that someone like that is simply born It's a function of intense labor, um, discipline, thinking about something and practicing over and over and over again. And it's funny because when I did the book, I almost went backwards. I look at someone like Einstein or Napoleon and, okay, they have incredible achievements, they're geniuses, they're masters. Where did it come from? Well, it came from this intense labor and, pra- and ability to focus on something for so many hours. Well, where did that ability to focus come from? Well, it came from, just as you mentioned, a deep love of the subject itself. So, in essence, I'm saying, in the, particularly in the first chapter, the, the seed, the starting point of any kind of mastery or genius is a very deep personal connection to what you're doing. Um, And that can be warfare and strategy, science, art, music. You feel like um, this is not just a career or something that sort of moderately interests you. You are personally deeply engaged. Einstein was obsessed with this problem of, of relativity and of figuring out The sort of paradoxes in Newton's universe to the point where he couldn't eat or sleep until he discovered it. You have that kind of level of of commitment. The brain is going to go into another gear and you're going to learn faster and you're going to enter this sort of mastery process. So I want to start it at that point now where you discover you yourself, the listener out there, what it is that you are passionately committed to and what engages you on the deepest level, and then you can sort of enter the process that I'm going to gonna describe to you.
2: So it's quite a democratic process, really, almost, say, anyone really, with the passion, with the dedication, could become a Napoleon or...?
3: Yes. Um, so, you know, it's true that in the past there are uh, only a few masters, so there's one Napoleon, uh, which is sort of a strange thing. Why is there one Napoleon? Um, He emerged at a very strange moment in history where the world was doing an about-face and suddenly um, somebody, it's not that he came from poverty, he actually came from an aristocratic background, but his family was relatively poor. But from Corsica, there was no chance anybody from that background could be in the French military and hope to a, become a general. He happens to have the good fortune to be born at the time of the French Revolution, so there's a matter of, of luck involved. But the, the thing in the past is, only certain people could follow uh, what I call their life's task, their calling in life, that, that passionate interest. Um, you were either born into the military or in Mozart's case, born into music. And if you happened to love it, it was mostly a coincidence. Or if you weren't born into it like a Da Vinci, you had to have like superhuman energy to overcome all of the barriers to become a great master. Um, now, uh, those barriers are gone, I think, mostly. The political, social barriers that made it that only basically in the West, white men of a certain background could become a master, that's all gone, essentially. W- women can be masters equally as, just as easily as men, any ethnicity, anybody from any economic background. And then the access to information that we now have is something that a Napoleon or a da Vinci could only dream about, What you could get with just click on the internet, you might take it for granted, Um, but it would take da da Vinci years of research to even begin to just get a, like a, a thousandth of what we can have in just a few seconds. That amount of information that you can now learn and develop many skills in your life and combine them in a unique way means that we have the possibility, the potential for a new kind of renaissance where there's masters in, in every field. And the democratic element I wanted to accentuate in this book by Profiling people, Uh, Zora Neale Hurston is an African-American who became a great novelist from the poorest background, Michael Faraday, a great English scientist, he came from poverty, Temple Grandin, she has born with autism, Cesar Rodriguez, he's a fighter pilot, he comes from a, a totally nondescript background juxtaposed with Darwin and Einstein. It's just this immense bag of people from all different backgrounds. It's not about the ethnicity, it's about how the human brain works.
2: And often it seemed that people who really did excel and achieve mastery often had to overcome quite a lot of challenges to get there. They seemed to be the sort of people who didn't just have it all on the plate that they, someone like Faraday, you'd never have thought he'd have ended up there. It was so much passion and a yes. bit of fortune as well. Was that a kind of a common trend with people in those days? Well,
3: let's say that Let's say that mastery is, requires a resistance factor. So if your life is easy and you have a lot of money and you don't have to worry about your future, there's not much that's going to impel you to want to try and master something. There's not a great drive, there's not a necessity. The origin, I I argue, in mastery goes back to our most primitive ancestors, and we were incredibly vulnerable, weak creatures when we first uh, moved onto the grasslands of East Africa the motivating factor towards mastering the environment and mastering the skill of hunting was just so deeply intense that it propelled you to to learn on deeper and deeper level so the more resistance that you're facing the more you're motivated and the harder you're going to try and the deeper the level of your desire to overcome these obstacles Um, and each of the people i profile are are facing that in some deep way Um, darwin himself didn't come from poverty. His father was a very successful doctor. Um, But Charles Darwin had uh, an ambition in life that didn't fit in any career path. that that seemed normal. He he was interested in nature and collecting specimens, but what kind of career was that? And the only thing his father could figure out for him was to get him a job as a church vicar or parson, where he could do that in his own own time. So he was facing a circumstance where he, he didn't fit in anywhere and he was very depressed about it, and he didn't know what he would become and so when he was offered the chance to go on the Beagle, uh, the HMS Beagle and voyage around the world and he ends up in South America, suddenly he's, he's so excited at the prospect of mastering this one thing that he's given a chance to is, as a ship's naturalist that he goes into this higher gear. You're only going to go into this higher gear and learn and be motivated if something is in your way. And... There's always going to be something in your way, and so the, the, the good thing about it is it means no matter your circumstance, no matter how things are hard for you, the brain is meant for overcoming these, these inadequacies, and in the book I tell the story of Temple Grandin, who I mentioned earlier as a woman born with autism, who is both basically looks like she's going to be hospitalized her entire life. Um, she can't learn language, she's, she's, she's pretty much lost. And slowly, her mother gets her out of this and she learns language and she goes to school and she finds her way um, to, f- to pursue the two things that excite her in life, which are animals and studying autism itself. So if someone like Temple Grandin can overcome that degree of, of obstacles in her path, then I think anybody can, essentially.
2: Did you find that the people That you write about, did they did they realise they'd achieved mastery? Did did they understand that they were on this path to to this situation, or or did it sort of pass them by when they were so engrossed in what they were doing?
3: Well, you know, nobody. uh, Well, first of all, there was no book written back in in those days, so they're basically (laughs) going on their own and they're making mistakes and they're following. I think pretty much people, some people have a kind of intuition as to what leads in this direction. They understand. Um, that, first of all, they're so excited by the f- subject that they're studying um, that they sort of naturally go into the process that leads to mastery. But what does happen is, and it's pretty exciting to to, to, uh, to, de- to chronicle in the book, when they do reach this level, let's say after 20 years of practicing it, um, and they've, they have what I call high-level intuition, where ideas come to them, they're much more creative, and they can think, and think, things are at their fingertip, is what I say. Um, they all describe this power in sort of similar terms, mm-hmm. and and the excitement that they have, and the feeling. You, they all, all of it's interesting. All of these great scientists talking about intuition, almost as if they were poets, or or or. Um, Novelists um, from Einstein to Niels Bohr to whomever Schrodinger to Faraday to Maxwell they all all of them talk about suddenly they have this intuitive feel for what 's going to come next for what for some new discovery or insight into the, into the physical world and it's to me it was very exciting to try and explore where that came from and what that means but essentially this, the story may be different depending on the field but this description of these incredible intellectual powers are pretty much the same
2: and was there ever a downside to achieving this this kind of mastery because you you have this this idea of this troubled genius who, who can't get on in other aspects of their life and dies in poverty did that apply to any of these people no
3: no I mean you you, you the, the These are all sort of myths that come about because we want to think of geniuses as these troubled figures, and therefore maybe it's not worth trying to go that far. You know, maybe they'd have a hard life. Mozart's the typical example, but Mozart's poverty and his debts, uh, which uh, the debts would drove him into dying at an early age, but he also was very sickly. Um, He had a a series of illnesses when he was a child, and that's probably what killed him. Um, He was an, an, an... he was on the verge of another great comeback uh, when, when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, things were actually looking up in his life. And he had an incredibly rich and, 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 and amazing life up until that point. Um, and so, you know, uh, you can think of, of, like, Einstein, for instance. Um, maybe he wasn't the most socially adept person but actually, he was a very charming man, and you know, uh, he had a great life. I, I think sometimes of someone like Steve Jobs, for instance, mm-hmm. who's not in the book because at the time I was writing, he was dying, and there was somebody else working on a biography of him, which we all know about now. Um, he, he seemed like someone who was not easy to get along with, who mm-hmm. pushed people, who was quite manipulative, who could be somewhat miserable at times. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think uh, his last 10 years show that he reached another level and he became pretty happy with himself and he sort of learned his lessons. And although he pushed people pretty hard and was an insane workaholic, he really, really loved his work. Um, And so I think the sense of achievement and fulfillment you have from realizing your potential or coming close to your potential is so satisfying that it trumps any kind of Illness or difficulties you might have later in life. So, I think in fact, masters are, are a lot happier than other people in some way.
2: And if you could choose just one historical figure as like the absolute sort of perfect role model if someone wants to achieve mastery, who would that be?
3: Well, it's hard to, to do because there are different fields, but I, I take Da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci, because first, I think he's the first modern master. Um, and the reason I say he's the first modern master is. He makes mastery um, something completely individualized. So um, there are other people before who've mastered um, architecture or art or sculpture, but he's the one to put a completely unique stamp on, on everything that he did. And what it is is, as a, as a boy, um, his great interest wasn't in just in drawing or in sketching, which he, he, he was self-taught before he went and apprenticed. It was capturing the reality of what he was trying to sketch, whether it was a flower or a stream or a human face. He had a scientific <laughs> approach to art. He wanted to get at what made something real. And through drawing it, he could figure out what it was that made a flower assume a certain shape. Kind of, he was a precursor to the study that's now known as morphology. Anyway, he then went and pursued this, he combined this scientific interest with art when he became a painter. He, his paintings of flowers or of backgrounds or of angels where he paints wings as if they're really realistically the, a bird's wings, has, he has this intense scientific spirit that he brings to everything that he does. And so essentially the lesson for me is that um, what da Vinci shows is that every human being is born unique, with certain inclinations, and we all felt it sometime in our life, whether it was math or music or, or in his case, drawing things in nature. And what a master does is they pursue, they stay true to that voice inside of them over a great period of time. And so, instead of most artists of his period would simply just become great painters, And he refused to do that. He wanted to learn about anatomy, about science, about engineering, about hydraulics, um, about about aviation and art. And he stayed true to that and he combined all of these interests into something that no one has ever done in history before. To me, he's the role model for what we're going through right now with the potential for mixing the arts and the sciences, for learning as many different skills and forms of knowledge and combining them in a way that suits our unique personality. He's the icon of the book, as Napoleon was the icon for my book on warfare, or Louis XIV for my book on power. This, to me, is the kind of the ultimate icon of mastery.
2: Do you have someone yourself that you've used to inspire your own career?
3: Who inspired my own career? That's an interesting question. (laughs) Um, I'd have to think about that in a way. You know, um, it's weird because um, when I started out writing back in books nineteen ninety six, because I prior to that had been in journalism and film and stuff. um, My problem was I could never figure out where I fit. Uh, I didn't fit into any of those areas. And so when I was given a chance to write a book which was the 48 Laws of Power. I came up with a structure and a way of writing the book that, quite honestly, didn't exist anywhere. Um, I think, unconsciously, I might have been influenced by books like the I Ching, or things in uh, from the Torah, growing up Jewish, where you had certain passages that were then interpreted, et cetera. But really, I don't know where it came from. Um, so I was sort of charting new ground. Um, there are other people in history who are much more elevated than I am, who discuss philosophy and try and relate it to something about everyday life. But I can honestly say um, that I had no precursors, nobody who wrote books like that, mixing history with lessons and uh, self-help with analysis and psychology. and. Um, So I don't know if that's a a good thing or a bad thing, (laughs) but I kind of found my way to something that was a reflection of my own peculiarities. And um, I'm inspired maybe by people like, uh, who come from really bad backgrounds and overcome obstacles. I don't know why I'm very much drawn to stories like that. And I did a book with the rapper, 50 Cent, um, and I found him very inspiring. I like people who, who overcome obstacles and they, they inspire me, but I think in writing I had to pretty much go my own way.
2: That was Robert Greene. Mastery has recently been published in the United Kingdom by Profile. And that's about all for this episode. Do join us next week when we'll be discussing Napoleon, among other things. And in the meantime, do take a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook too. The History Extra podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.